Welcome to another episode of the Michigan State University Work-Life Podcast. Here in my office at 116 Linton Hall, to my right I have Mike Gardner, former Outstanding Supervisor Award winner, or I should say past Outstanding Supervisor Award winner, uh, with time served at Culinary Services, if my memory serves me correctly. And to his right, we have David Gift. David, why don't you pull that microphone up a little bit closer okay. to you, right to How's the that? edge? Of the, that's great. Right. Usually, I do all that stuff beforehand, but the listeners are going to lo- get a little behind the scenes. Yep. In here. Yeah, there we, we, yeah, we've never falling, dro- falling umbrellas <laughs> this and everything. Is a live broadcast. That's right. We've never dropped anything. We've never had any problems. Uh, this until is a, now. That's right. So, uh, with that, we will welcome David Gift, and I'll ask you, David. Well, first, welcome. Thank you. And I'll ask you, because I don't know much about you, uh, just start riffing about uh, when you started at MSU, uh, when you ended, and what you did in between. Well, I started here as an undergrad student in 1971, if people's calendars nowadays go back that far. Um, (laughs) And I came here to be an astrophysics major, because this is still one of the few places that has top-ranked physics and astronomy on, on the same campus. Um, I didn't go into theoretical astrophysics because I discovered along the way that uh, I could earn a degree, but uh, probably wasn't going to get into the best grad school. Uh, and um, But I did start working uh, in the Department of Radiology uh, as a computer programmer supporting medical research that was very cutting edge that was going on there in medical decision making. And I just uh, stuck there. So I was, I was in radiology for uh, 23 and a half years. Uh, was blessed to work with a, an incredibly talented uh, chair who got me and the department involved in all sorts of really cool things. But I, I began supporting uh, clinical research. I realized I knew nothing about medicine, so I started getting involved in, in teaching uh, medicine. And the last eight years I was there, I was associate chair of the department. And along the way, did capital projects, started joint venture corporations for the university and things like that. Um, from there, I went into the provost's office. And for a while, I was uh, sort of an internal management consultant and basically had the opportunity to work with every single academic unit. And I think all the support, all, all the operating units on campus, other than maybe uh, what's now called hospitality services, but um, just helped with a really diverse set of things, starting new academic programs, closing academic programs and departments, um, and, uh, and, and an elevator uh, maintenance life cycle study, among just other things. Uh, That's unique. Uh, pri- privatization. Yes, it ups and down. Yes, oh. it does. Oh, boy. So... So anyway, that, that, was, that was cool, and then I was recruited to be vice provost and CIO, and I spent the last 11 years of my total of 37 and a half years at Michigan State as, a, as an employee uh, in, in that role. Um, I also, the, the title obscures the fact, perhaps, that I also had libraries, archives, and public broadcasting in that portfolio, so it was a, a really cool set of things that I'm passionate about, each and every one of them, so it was fun. You've uh, journeyed quite a road <laughs> over a course of only a few years. You know, 1971 wasn't too far back. Uh, but, it, yeah, right? <laughs> it, uh, it sounds like you might have uh, really felt that Michigan State was a great place to be. 
uh, coming up in the area and then working here for so long. Did you learn anything when you first got here that many years ago? What is it, 48 years ago now? Do you remember anything from the back then in the 70s, a great decade I was born in, that you still carry with you today in terms of leading a team and outstanding supervision? What did you learn back then that you still enact today? Well, you know, at the time, I would never, um, I'm not sure I ever aspired to be a manager or a leader. But uh, I, I discovered that, first of all, I believe really strongly in leadership at all levels. And, and as, you, as you know at this point, I would rather talk about leadership than supervision. Because to me, supervision has kind of a, a penal uh, characterization. It's like you're watching over people and making sure they do their work, whereas leadership uh, really expands the field of play for what you can be. And I think it, it, if, if you think about uh, a supervisory role in terms of a leadership role, you open up doors for yourself and you open up doors for the people that you work with. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was involved in, uh, in, in, in radiology. Every year I was thrown three or four things I knew nothing about and asked to make something of them. And so, and you, you can never do anything on your own. So you, you've always got to recruit help from others. Um, whether you're a formal supervisor and you have direct assigned supervisory responsibilities over other people or not, you will always be leading teams of people to get work done. Uh, they may be people completely outside your unit. They may be people above your pay grade. <laughs> Um, and so you have to learn how to um, uh, understand project management, how to understand how to influence, uh, ex exercise influence, and recruit resources and other people's time and attention at, at the time you need it and in the ways that you need it. And you also have to understand uh, when you don't violate those other people's need to be heads down working on whatever they're supposed to be working on. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I learned lessons every week and uh, it was partly um, you know by by watching people that set good examples and partly by being around people that didn't set good examples and, and just saying to myself if I ever had the opportunity I wouldn't do it that way and you just begin accumulating that stuff um, I, I was really blessed in 92-93 um, I left Michigan State for a year to be a Sloan Fellow with MIT in the Sloan School of Management. And that's basically a, a formal MBA program uh, and uh, gives, uh, really gives you the chance to kind of reflect for a year, take classes, do some writing, do a lot of thinking, and really kind of pull all of everything you've observed and learned formally and experientially together and try to make some coherent sense out of it. Yeah, it sounds like you've experienced some doors opening for yourself, and now you take that experience and uh, try to exhibit leadership by opening doors for others. So your experience being led has led to your experience leading. Uh, I'm going to ask you then about leaders who you saw, especially earlier in your career, that might have influenced you. Can you remember any individuals' names and what they did that influenced you today? Well, the, the two people uh, that really mattered the most to my career at Michigan State were my chair of radiology, Jim Pochin, who was kind of a renaissance man, uh, trained in multiple areas, uh, a, a great leader 
from the very earliest days of the field of nuclear medicine, uh, lots of international connections. And um, Jim was a very generous individual. Uh, he was intellectually challenging to everybody around him. And uh, he, very intense personality. And I just, I just learned, I mean, again, he created challenges. He, he was a font of ideas. And one of my jobs was to pick the 1% of his ideas that, that we could actually execute on. And, and then as a department, go off and, and do those things. But we got involved in CT scanning, MRI scanning, PET scanning before they were FDA approved in the U.S., before insurance companies knew what they were going to do about it. And so I got involved in um, the, the statewide approval process, what was then a certificate of need process, negotiating with, with third-party payers around what they would pay. And we began testing the limits clinically of, of how many people you could serve uh, and in, in a day and, and how, how you worked in a community where, for example, we... Jim had the bright idea to open a third shift, and I thought that was crazy, except uh, that was when a whole boatload of GM workers were getting out of the factories, and that's when they had free time for their health care. So it made perfect sense, and um, by, by doing that, it, it gave us the, the means to, uh, to help develop the technology further. We had a joint R&D relationship with GE Medical Systems, so all, all of these... You know, you got corporate relationships and legislative and industry, you know, insurance industry. I was right in the middle of all that swirl, and uh, that, that just gave me incredible opportunities. And then Jim was generous with my time. He would, he would loan me to other chairs and deans and so on, and, and each one of those experiences was a great learning opportunity. The second person was Luanna Simon, who mm-hmm. uh, basically... Uh, welcomed me into the provost's office, and uh, he, she enjoys baseball a lot and baseball analogies, and so she called me her utility infielder, and, and I got to do a lot of different things uh, uh, because of that uh, and um, just worked with an amazing set of colleagues, um, and, and we did some really cool things as, as a team. You know, so, again, sometimes you were kind of on your own. Other times you were, you were part of a, a really remarkable team. Yeah, it sounds like a diverse set of <clears throat> projects and tasks and a variety of individuals really makes for uh, an enriching experience at Michigan State, uh, whether you're on campus or off campus, whether you're in an office or on a field somewhere. If you can have a variety in the things that you do, you're probably going to enjoy it a little bit more. And as you've been yep. here for a while, you've, you've seen a variety of things. And you mentioned that you have seen a variety of great mentors and, you know, real role models and good examples. And you also mentioned that you've uh, seen some not so great examples. And uh, I'm going to remind the listeners that this podcast is not only for uh, talking about great supervision, but also identifying instances where uh, the relationship with a supervisor or a leader is not so great. And so we're trying to reach out with this podcast and actually get to those folks who might need a little bit of tips and tricks about how to improve their supervision and leadership. Some of those supervisors that haven't won the award yet, you know, we can hopefully educate and inform them on how to be good. I'm going to, not just good, but outstanding. I'm going to end my line of questioning and then I'm going to pass the microphone to Mike over here so you both can engage in a conversation. 
My last question for you, uh, since that you've had such a, a, a long tenure at Michigan State and a variety of experiences from uh, the top of the org chart through the middle, through the bottom, when you are leading teams as a CIO or with the, in the provost suite, is there anything different than leading a team, say, from the bottom up? You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. leadership. I'm not a supervisor right now. I don't have a slash S, but I lead my team and sometimes yep. lead my boss forward. So what are the similarities and differences uh, between leadership at the top of the org chart versus at the middle versus at the bottom? That's a great question. I, I guess I'll, I'll try to um, keep my answer as concise as possible by starting with the differences at different levels. I, I don't believe there are big differences at different levels. The, the, the biggest difference, I think, is just the the scale and consequence and complexity of the thing of the issues that you're dealing with. I, I remember as a young guy being hauled into meetings in the president's office or, or the provost's office uh, with Jim and um, thinking that we were going there to talk about you know a certain issue and I was all prepped and ready to dig into the details of that issue. And um, I, I was uh, confounded the first few times by the fact that we'd spend maybe five minutes talking about that issue and then the rest of the crowd would be talking about other things. So what I learned along the way was that they, that, that technical issue that I had poured my heart and soul into was a tiny piece of a really large, complex political picture or interorganizational picture or, or within the organization picture. And they were, they were playing out all the possibilities, all, all the things that could go right and all the things that could go wrong. And they were all things that I didn't know about because I'd never been exposed to them. Um, but I credit those meetings uh, later on with learning that fact, that, that those people were dealing with a, a world that operated differently than the world I was accustomed to. And, and I had to learn how to bridge into that world if I was, if I was going to advance. And I, I was, again, I was fortunate to do that through experience. Now, the, the, the way that it's the same, uh, you, you mentioned some of these aspects already, John. I'm, I'm a big fan of servant leadership. I'm a big fan of uh, the idea that you have two jobs when you have a job. One, one is to do your job, and the other is to help everyone around you do their job. So when you're dealing with someone who's being difficult, um, more often than not, they're really not a difficult person. I mean, they may manifest that way. That may be their primary affect. But by and large, um, you know, people just want to do good work and do it well. And um, if you can find out, if you, you can delve into their uh, soul a little bit and find out what, you know, what's important to them, what... Um, how to help them manage. More often than not, there's a, there's a line of negotiation called uh, uh, interest-based bargaining or mutual gains bargaining. And you know, usually when, when two people go into a negotiation, they go into it bargaining positionally. It, they make it about one thing, like their salary, and they just positionally bargain around what the number is, figuring they're going to have to meet in the middle, right? Usually, uh, quality of work situation isn't about your salary. It's about a whole bunch of things, and it's it's been found over and over that when you lay all that whole portfolio of things out on the table, 
you and the other party will probably reach a much more satisfactory conclusion that will work better for both of you. And so um, that, I, I think you have to approach every human interaction in an organization through that lens of interest-based bargaining. And you start out by finding out what the other person's interests are. And then you figure out how you can get what you want to get done in a way that helps them get what they want to get done. And then they become an ally at, at that point. Um, and uh, so, so often, um, I, I think people get in their heads that there's just one way to get something done. Uh, it, it may be a really good way. And then they run into what they believe is obstructionist behavior by others. And it may not really be obstructionist behavior. It may just be, you know, you're, you're trying to get this done in a way that's actually going to hurt me. If we could talk a little bit, we'll find a way where we can serve both of our interests. And that, so, so that's where it's the same. And, and I really think that uh, I also am a strong believer in the concept of leading at all levels. Uh, and you, you, even if, if you're not a supervisor, if you just have a job to do. I, I was always so impressed by uh, the grounds crew at Michigan State. You know, at, at one level, you, you know, you can say, well, you know, they're, they're just out there doing whatever they have to get done, raking the leaves or mowing the lawn or whatever, but they all, they were all willing to stop to help a lost student find their way, or they were all willing to stop what they were doing to help one of their colleagues pick up a particularly heavy object or empty a big trash bin or something. They, they were all willing to get their job done, and they felt passionately about doing their job and help everybody else around them, whether it had anything to do with their job or not. So to me, that's leadership, and, and that's the kind of leadership that every single person can exercise, whether they're in a, a supervisory role or a team leadership role or not. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jim being kind of a renaissance man, and, and I'm here listening to your portfolio of, of work here at MSU, and it seems you've kind of became that renaissance man yourself. Coming from a non-classically trained supervisor position in radiology yeah. on up, uh, and then going to work in a uh, with the provost's office kind of is a divergent uh, uh, path you took uh, along the yeah. way. Um, and I, I, I'm interested in the fact that you know, and you, you hit on a really good point on the leadership part. And um, I've always felt that um, one of the one of the roles we have is to develop a culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And what you spoke about with the grounds crew and everything else is a culture. That has somehow been ingrained in that employee. Yep. Okay, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the aspects of uh, supervisor and leadership. When you have a team that reports to you, that you want to have that kind of a culture. Yeah. And develop. Talk a little bit about how you develop that kind of culture in that work environment. Yeah, terrific question, Mike. I, I think culture really is important. Um, it, it's not. It's not easy to do. I mean, you can develop a culture in a single team, but um, the team never works in a bubble, and so it's always impacted by the culture that's surrounding it. Uh, one of the things that, that I worked on with a bunch of people uh, at Michigan State, and I, I have no idea what state of affairs this is in today, was attempting to kind of ratify a, com- a common or consistent culture of leadership across the university. There were, every single uh, unit was involved in some respect with professional development of their people and, and, and so on. But um, 
it didn't go across across divisions or across units really effectively. So there was a group that um, Don Hecker in HR had pulled together. Don, I, I always admired Don a great deal. Uh, her head was screwed on properly, and mm-hmm. and um, she worked hard on this kind of stuff. Um, uh, Jim Dunlop, the mm-hmm. former chief of police, was involved because he was working on building a culture in the police force that 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 I thought was a very positive um, culture. Uh, um, I, I was involved. We had uh, a, quite a, a number of people. We had folks from from then Housing and Food mm-hmm. Services mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, in, involved because, and I know Venny's been been working yes. on that. Uh, and and it's there's been um, a, a culture uh, there as well. One of, one of the places where I saw uh, cross kind of cross organizational training really work great. We we when. Um, I was in the provost's office. One of the things I helped with was faculty development. And we were concentrated mostly on chairs and deans because those are horrible jobs. They're, they're really, really hard. Department chair in particular because often it's a job that you get as a reward for uh, making it to full professor and becoming tenured. And nobody, ever, nobody wants it, right? They, 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 they don't want to be the Sounds good, person that's got to check up on all their colleagues. They don't want to leave their lab or their research. And they don't want to you know, diminish their teaching. And... They're saddled with huge piles of paperwork, and and in many academic units, you get this. Uh, you know, every two years, you get a mm-hmm. new chair, and so there's no there's no development of culture. There's no no uh, opportunity for leadership. There there are units where people have been chairs for a very long time. In in my experience in the clinical world, the the culture mm-hmm. there is is chairmanship for life, right? And <laughs> and um, but but one of the things that does is it helps you to build culture. So we. Uh, Don Strainy and I, Don was in the provost's office. He uh, is now in the upper system administration at the University of Hawaii. But um, he was in charge of faculty development programs. We were concentrating on chairs and deans. And he knew about a guy at uh, the University of Pennsylvania at Penn named Bob Zemsky, who ran a, a leadership institute there. The, the, the institute was Bob and his, his postdoc, right? So it, it was a pretty small thing, but it was really uh, conceptually a great idea. The idea was that you would, you would take a team, your president or provost on down uh, to Penn, you spend a very intensive five days there, half in classes being taught by outstanding faculty and practitioners, and half workshopping, basically planning on how you were going to plan some kind of a major change project on your campus. So it was all about change management and so on. Well, um, Don and I took a team out there, and we fell in love with the program. And after we came back, we we told, and this was after talking with Luana, who was provost at the time, we, you know, we, we basically said, uh, look, we need to do this with, with the whole leadership on the campus. We, we can't just stop with one team. And Bob didn't want that, but he could use the the subscribers to the program. And so we took two teams a year uh, out there. And uh, before long, we had done all the deans and we had done all the vice presidents. And, and the collaborative culture that existed in that set of people was incredible. It, it really made, I think, a difference in the way... It, it, Michigan State has always, academically, has always been focused on cross-disciplinary connections and keeping those walls really low. Um, which is really cool. But in that period of time, a lot of those walls that were low just broke apart completely because the deans were willing to work together. They were really able to think together. And part of that was because they all had the same 
intellectual framework. They all have the same jargon to use in talking about this stuff. You know, when you, one of the great failings of professional development is you, you can send individuals off to it, but if they're the only one going um, from your culture, mm-hmm. they'll come back with fresh ideas, a new way of thinking about stuff, a new language, and they won't have anyone to talk with about it. So sending, any time that you have the ability to send teams and really over, even if it takes time, over time to immerse a whole group of people in the same way of thinking, uh, that kind of cultural development uh, works. And I think some of that's stuck. I mean, you know, eventually deans get other jobs, chairs move on in, in their careers, whatever, and, and you begin diluting that original group. But there was a lot of, of that that stuck behind. So when new deans would come in, they would come into a situation where they were expected to work with other deans. They weren't expected just to concentrate on their college. So those kinds of um, tacit expectations mean a lot as well, which culture helps to to imbue. I think if you have a well-established culture, when somebody new comes in, it's much easier for them to adapt to that culture when there's masses that are following it already. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I've gone to you know, many programs where, uh, you know, we started to celebrate state program where right. we tried to go over from the bottom up coming through this program. And our, our department was initiated that program, and it spread across the university to try to, again, uh, break down some of those barriers and get some common ground that we can all, all work yeah. on, you know. Um, the hard part is when you have an existing culture that isn't running with the rest of the herd, you know, and trying to get that change made when there's been a negative culture involved with employees being on that negative end of it. It takes a little more work and leadership from that supervisor to do that. Yeah, it takes patience and and persistence and consistency. I I had the experience of of changing culture in, in at least one case, and... Uh, had walked into a culture that was um, based on pretty rigid management, and mm-hmm. uh, that's not my style. I, I, I want people to, I, I want people to be principle centered. I, I believe the principle centered leadership is important. You need to understand yourself and what you think is important in life, and then and then act. You use that as a touchstone always to guide uh, the decisions you make and and how you treat others. Um, and you know everyone's different. Those principles can be different, but it's it's nice to do that because then you can you can share those principles. I guess this gets into another thing too. I think leadership is is about teaching and learning. So you should never never stop learning. Never ever stop learning. You, there's always more you can learn. You never know everything, and you never even know enough. And you never know all the little wrinkles. And so you can always learn from new experiences and people. But then part of being a good leader is, is teaching and helping others with their learning experience. And um, I think the more, the more you, can, you can explain to people, here's what I think we should do, it, and we're, but let's talk about why we should do that rather than me just saying, this is what you're all going to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you better do it that way. But, you know, let's really talk this out and decide collectively why we think this is the best course of action. 
Um, the, the, another aspect of leadership is being a visionary, and, and um, a, a lot of people want their leaders to be visionary. And what I, what I discovered was that there's really two ways you can be a visionary. One is you really can see the future, and that's, that's a very, very rare talent, right? But the other is that you can ask other people about what they think the future is going to look like or what, what, what the risks and opportunities are, and then you can synthesize all the different things that you're hearing. So again, that's another form of learning from others, basically. But that—that's that, what I try to do. Um, we, as a CIO, one of the things you know, people say, "Well, Dave, you ought to have a strategic plan." And, and my belief is, well, strategic plans—you work really hard on them; they get set on the shelf and ignored. Yep. So I, I'm a big subscriber to. The, I think it's the Eisenhower quote that, that plans are nothing, but planning is everything. It's the process of planning, getting people to think together. And then what you want to do is just keep replanning. Uh, when I f- first began a CIO, we talked about um, kind of the wh- where the horizon was for the future. In other words, how how far out could you look through the lens of technology and think that that you knew exactly the way things were going to be? And I started in late 2001, and uh, our planning horizon at the time we thought was maybe one to two years. When I retired 11 years later, uh, we were pretty well convinced our planning horizon was maybe three months. Mm-hmm. We, we, we couldn't tell past three months that there wasn't going to be some disruptive technology or something that didn't look disruptive at first but then would catch on if you think about cloud services or things like that or social media and any, any of those kinds of things. Uh, even things like social media have gone through many, many iterations by now. Uh, it, it, the way social media works today is not the way it worked in the in the beginning or in the middle. So um, you you have to keep planning, you have to keep thinking, you have to keep talking with each other, and it all come, it, It's all going to come back to certain set of principles that are going to guide where you think you need to get and how you think you need to get there. But but the but the where and the how is going to be constantly changing and churning. Uh, and getting back to the culture change piece, Mike, you mentioned, you know, it's kind of stepping into a, a situation where you think the culture could be different or you'd like it to be different. Um, you, you have to overcome a lot of fear. You have to overcome a lot of, of uncertainty and doubt. You know, it's the old FUD, fear, mm-hmm. uncertainty, and mm-hmm. doubt, right? Uh, and um, help people um, understand that they don't, uh, if, if they make mistakes, it's not just okay, it's really great to talk about it, to own mm-hmm. up to it, because you can learn from that. Um, and that you're not, no one's going to pound on you or fire you or, you know, that, that you're actually going to be held in higher esteem if, if you come forward and say, I, I think I just did something really wrong. Now let's, let's all talk about how we're going to fix, you know, who, who was harmed and how we're going to fix that. Um, but that's establishing a culture where a person feels comfortable to do that. Yeah, because I, that is not always the fact because they, of the reprimands they may have gotten in the past. Exactly. And, and, that's and, a that, hurdle and, that's to be, over. and you have to repeat it, right? right? right. You, you, you can't convert someone's belief system in one try. That's right. Yeah. I've had managers and bosses tell me now, you know, I want you, I want to hear it, good or bad, tell me what it is. And then someone does that, and then they get... They get, yeah. you know, they they get it for it. So you have to, and I think part of the leadership thing that you're, you're alluding to is you have to walk the talk. You've got to be yeah. the role model for yeah. that for those employees in that culture to really work. You can you can prophesy and you can talk about all you want, but unless you actually walk that talk to show them 
this is how it's going to be, and it's really not that bad. I think you'd like it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and that, I think, is that leadership. It's that role model. It's being able to demonstrate what that, and yeah. where you're going. Yeah. Well, and you have to know how to make connections. Um, so ev- everyone's a bundle of good and bad attributes, mm-hmm. right? No, right. Th- there's no one that's all wonderful, uh, and there's no one that's all horrible either. And and so um, yeah, we, we all come with strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and, and skills and lack of skills. Um, one one of the things that I'm never been I, I think I'm getting better at, but I've never been really great at, is just talking with people, mm-hmm. just sitting down with somebody that you don't know and having a conversation where you get to know them better. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just awkward at that. Um, you, you you get better by practicing and by observing uh, other people. Um, I, I also ha- have a hard time, I guess, judging where a person is with their with their life. I've worked mm-hmm. with. I've worked with other uh, managers who are amazing at that. They they come in to me and say, "Dave, I'm I'm thinking about changing this person's role." And I go, well, "Why?" So, well, he just seems stuck. He just mm-hmm. seems stuck. And I, I think if, I, if if we got him unstuck, good things would happen. And it's like, well, you know, I, I have to trust that. There's no, I, I have nothing to go on sure. personally. And over and over, this manager was right about those things. And this was a. This was in a technology environment. This is not in a yeah. place where you expect people to have great people skills, right? Yeah, right. So I, I always admired that. I think I, I was able to learn how to talk with people and get to know them better. I was never able to figure out what that individual did that, that was so magical with respect to just... Sometimes it's just a gift yeah, to a yeah, certain degree. And, right. and you know, one of the terms that our department used a lot was getting the right seat on the bus. Yeah. You know, yes. and, and finding your lane and finding your area to excel and yep. be the best that you can be. Yep. And as a manager and as a leader, supervisor, that was part of our role was to get that and find that one spot for them. Sometimes it was convincing the individual that this really was the best spot yeah. for them. And a lot of times after that move, they realized and came back and said, you know, that was really a good move for me because I'm feeling much better about myself, yeah. my life, and my job. Yeah. So one, one of the, the other things in terms of helping people there, there was a simple three-part lesson that I learned from one of the, the Wharton School uh, professors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is, he, and he, he used a, a, a Civil War movie clip uh, uh, to teach this. But the, the, the Civil War movie clip, and I can't remember the name of the movie or the actor, and it was a, all very famous, but I'm not a movie person. So, um, But anyway, it was a scene where this person was, was given, ba- basically the Union Army was running out of people to fight, and, and um, they had all these prisoners of war that were a combination of, of Confederate prisoners and um, uh, Union soldiers that had gone AWOL and were captured. But they were just hauling them along, right? And so these folks were dead weight. And, and this person was told by the general or whatever, said, you lead this group and turn them into a fighting force. And the, the famous scene is this speech that this person does. And it, it has three elements. And boy, I learned the hard way by, by not doing this correctly uh, over and over, that th- this was a really simple lesson. What, one is, first of all, recognize what those people who they are and what they've done and where they are and why they're there. You know, re- empathize with them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, lo- a lot of them had been conscripted. They didn't want to be fighting. A lot of them had, you know, parents that were dying at home. They didn't want to be away from their from their homestead. Um, but get to understand, you know, why they're disgruntled, essentially. 
Uh, also honor them for what they what they've done, what you know the, the the service and the value that that they've had in the past. And we, I learned this lesson again. I, I employed it too late, really, and made some personal mistakes. And we we had to change so many of the systems here at, at Michigan State, and we were doing that with the people who had written all the old systems. Mm-hmm. Those systems had served the university really well for a long time. They were they were beginning to really fail the place because times change. Mm-hmm. The, the place evolved. The systems did not evolve, at least not quickly enough. But you can't just show up and say, we need to change these things because the old ones are, are crap, right? It doesn't go over well. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> go over well. You know, you, you've got to basically start out by engaging those folks and saying, you know, you, you people have done fabulous work. You really have. The, the second thing is to get them to understand, you know, so the first is honor, honoring and respe- respecting the people in front of you. The second is getting them to understand in principle why change is necessary. And, and, um, that buy-in process yeah. is, is difficult sometimes. Right. <laughs> and and, and it's, um, it's got to be at a very high level. Yes. I think that was the other, the other lesson. You, you want to make this almost religious. It can't be about nitty-gritty. It's got to be about high-order, ethical, or... or um, operational things. And then the third piece is helping them understand that they have a place mm-hmm, in creating mm-hmm. this change. There's still value that in There's them. still value in and them. That, and that right. is a big, big yeah. piece right there. Yeah. And and that and the you understand that they're going to need help slotting into that, that new world. Uh, and that some of them may choose not to want to slot in. But it's, it's those three elements. And you know when I look back at the things that I really did poorly as a manager, it's where I didn't pay attention to those. But it was a learning process, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's picking up what you learned and being able to use it. I had a, well, now that I'm retiring, you, I, you yeah. know, I, I, I'm less likely to make that mistake, right? <laughs> yeah, my wife's getting a little tired of me trying to make up uh, for lost time being home. <laughs> You're micromanaging. No, I'm not. Just think this works. No. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I went to some of those, a similar class where one of the business professors here did a program and used a lot of movie clips to demonstrate yeah. leadership and supervision and what to do and how to do and it it kind of really brings it right out in front just yeah. like you had yeah. suggested in this one and and and, and to do that but um, it's it's getting those principles and keeping them in front of you because you go to these programs and you get these things and they give you the book you know and it goes on the shelf you know and stuff but it's coming back and trying to utilize those things yeah. that you've learned uh, that you know that could be a benefit to your team, right? You know, and keeping it in front of you. And I, I found sometimes because you get so wrapped up in the daily routines and the daily things that sometimes those all those good programs and all those great ideas and you come back so gung ho, you know, it's hard to keep it, that momentum going. Away. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, and, and when you're dealing, I mean, the other lesson I learned, life lesson I learned along the way is when you're dealing with an issue. You are too close to the issue to be good at dealing mm-hmm. with it. You know, you, you've always got to. Go talk to some other people who can see the issue from a distance. I, uh, I, you know, if I look back on my own career, there were plenty of times when I was in that distance role, right? Mm-hmm. I was brought in a situation where people weren't getting along or something wasn't working out, and I was being asked to sort, sort it. And um, the only reason I could get it sorted out was because I wasn't right there on the front lines. You know, I, I could take a step back mm-hmm. emotionally. So, um, so that's really helpful. The other piece of that, Mike, that you reminded me of uh, when, when I was CIO, 
we began using a program that, that a lot of the other Big Ten schools have been using called MORE Associates. Uh, it's M-O-R, stands for Maximizing Organizational Resources or something like that. But um, we, we, every year, we, this is one of those team things, we put um, a cohort of eight or ten people through this program. But they were in a bigger cohort with six or seven other Big Ten universities. Mm-hmm. They went around to each other's campuses uh, for coaching meetings and for classes and so on. Uh, this, this was run by a, a third party. Um, over time, we put... In, in my era, 125 people through that. So that so two things happened about that. Number one, um, they were their own cohort on campus. They all spoke the same language. The, the more associates thing was all about leaderly behaviors. It wasn't mm-hmm. about leadership. It wasn't about super. It was aimed at supervisors, but it wasn't about supervision. It was about leaderly behaviors. And with, with, again, I thought that was really cool. People who have been through the program love it. But the the other aspect that was really important was they kept in touch with those folks at other universities. Mm -hmm. And networking is big. The network. And and seeing how people in other work cultures, other, you know, something else I learned early on dealing uh, in national consortia was the way universities do their budgeting kind of helps you understand their culture. Mm -hmm. The way they think about things, the way they make management decisions, you can tie it all back to how they run their budgets. Um, which is really, as, as a cultural artifact, mm-hmm. it's like, seriously, the budget establishes culture, but it does. And um, you, you got different answers to the same question at different campuses, and it all had to do with the budgetary lens that they were looking through mm-hmm. in terms of what characterized success on their campus. So seeing that, oh, maybe, you know, we did it this way, but you did it that way, and the only difference is the way we do our budgets, that, that was enlightening to people mm-hmm. and they could they could suddenly see that they needed to think outside of that box mm-hmm. um, you're, you're not always able to because the reality you live in is your budgeting you're, system yeah. but um, but but just understanding that that thing that seems very arbitrary has that kind of effect on how you make make management decisions is really remarkable uh, yeah, the thing I found in working with other universities and talking to peer groups was how much we have in common yeah, and how much uh, we have similar issues and similar problems, and finding out their thinking on how to do that yeah. and take care of that problem, which was re- very beneficial to come back and talk to our peer group on campus and say, okay, hey, you know, this is something that they're doing; and it seems to work. Yeah, maybe we should give it a try. Right, because you know, we get locked into our walls sometimes, and we don't see some other things that are that are available out there. Well, the, be- the, the again, the best way to learn uh, is to just go out and yeah. observe right yeah. and yeah. and to and to get uh, outside of your usual circle we the, the the best aspect about that program and about really the big 10 so so at least mm-hmm. in yeah. in uh, in the world of the CIOs and I know this is true in, in a lot of other uh, uh, support operations and academic operations uh, the big 10 academic alliance is highly collaborative mm-hmm. and so you you've got however many there are these days, <laughs> to draw on. You know, a lot of resources. Ex- yeah, a, lot of a resources. huge amount of resources. And yeah. you may work in a huge institution yourself, but you, you've got this bigger. And that, the, the, the Big Ten is one of the most powerful things there is in our nation. Um, and again, it has to do with, with the fact that it's been 
sharing ideas for, I guess now, close to 60 years. Uh, that's another mm-hmm. thing, people, the, the old CIC, yes. the Committee on Institutional Cooperation, I, I still carry a little leather portfolio that has a 50th anniversary stamp on it, and that goes, that goes back a ways yeah. now. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think it's approaching 60 years that the, the provosts and presidents got together and said, you know, if we can play each other in an, as, as, an, as athletic competitors, um, we ought to be able to do some cool things by working with each other. On the academic and operation side of the well, house, and, and I think some of that internally, even in to break it down even smaller, is in the state of Michigan itself with yeah. the universities within the state. Right, there's more cooperation and things going on amongst them because we're all in the same financial oh, yeah. budget yeah. boat. Everybody else is to a certain degree, right. so we have to kind of play in that same game. But, well, and I think mm-hmm. the people don't realize uh, when, when I was uh, at least speaking personally when I was in medicine. I had a whole bunch of, of alliances and things going on with the University of Michigan. When I was CIO, I, the University of Michigan and Michigan State did a whole lot of stuff together. Yep. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Luana used to say rivals on the, on the field and, and uh, collaborators Oops. in the classroom. Right. Um, but that, that collaboration space is, is uh, really broad, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's uh, far more cross-fertilized than I think a lot of people realize. Well, I know that you brought in a list of principles that uh, we were going to cover, and I'm thinking you uh, might have covered them all because I have taken about three pages worth of notes, okay? And I would recommend anyone listening to this to hit rewind, go back and take some notes. I'm looking at the three ways um, that... uh, Three practical ways that uh, supervisors and leaders can lead their teams, and that's to honor and recognize their staff, who they are and what they've done, explain why a change is necessary, and make sure that it's apparent to the team that they everyone has a place and is valued. Uh, you also mentioned servant leadership. Can you just take a minute to give us a very concise definition in your perspective of servant leadership because that's something that I brought up in previous episodes. I have my own yeah. definition. What's yours? Well, I, so I'd recommend to folks that if they're really interested in that concept, they should go buy Robert Greenleaf's book. It's, it's a little book, uh, very easy, uh, quick read, and then you know exactly what servant leadership is really about. In, in my view, it's, it's just this business about how you don't lead through command and control. You don't lead through fear or authority. You you lead by helping everyone succeed, um, both on their own terms and in terms of the team. And and that you know again you you teach as well as learn. Um, you you try to help other people do their jobs as much as you try to help get your own job done. It's it's. Things like that. Uh, again, Greenleaf does a, a, a far better job of, of explaining it, and it's always good to go back to the to the source. You mentioned teaching and learning, and it's I think it's so hard. It's a tough nut to crack in academia for chairs and deans to remember that learning is at least half of what they should be doing, not just yeah. teaching and directing. So it might be a little bit more difficult than it sounds on a podcast, but hopefully we've given uh, every one of the listeners enough practical tools and tips to take forward. 
uh, you've brought up culture of leadership, and you and Mike talked about it, and I'm a sociologist, so I know culture as a set of norms, beliefs, and values. We've talked about all three of those domains, and leading at all levels. It's really important to observe leaderly behaviors, and for individuals who are at a lower end of this uh, organizational chart, they can observe leaders at the top and in the middle, and leaders at the top need to observe leadership at the middle and at the lower levels on the org chart. And that's critical because that's where they can learn um, what some are effective leaderly behaviors. I think this is, I I see my batteries are kind of running low. So (laughs) yeah, I'm getting a little bit nervous as to wrapping this up. Well, we may be, uh, you know, kind of uh, infringing on people's uh, willingness to keep listening when we get into this. (laughs) It's a long trip on the treadmill when you're at 48 minutes, but, uh, Before we wrap it up, I have one more note on my page that I'd like to hear your response to because I don't have an answer written down, just a question. You brought it up that you need to make sure your team knows what success means, what it looks like. In your own perspective, at Michigan State, here, the university, the climate we're in, the culture we're trying to build, what does success mean for the future of Michigan State in your eyes? Well, um, academic institutions are, to me, some of the most important institutions we have as as humans. Um, Human knowledge and understanding, and and so now when you include understanding, that also includes all the arts, um, just needs to continue to to expand and and grow. It's, It's what ultimately improves the quality of human life. Um, how that happens, though, uh, you know, it's, it, we've heard predictions about the, the end of, of the university as we know it uh, now for a long time. And I've been in meetings where people have said, nope, nope, this time that's really true. You know, the, the online education is going to kill it. Um, it. It needs to evolve, but there's still something about people, about young people going off and really for the first time in their lives being away from their families, being able to vent to invent themselves on their own terms, um, to struggle with what they want to do the rest of their lives. Uh, one of the things that's cool about Michigan State is it's easy, I think it's still easy to change majors. We don't, we don't force kids to apply to a college and, and think that they know what they're going to be when they grow up, when they're, when they're 17. Um, and, and you can be many, many things. So I, to, to me, what's important about success is that it's, uh, the university is as holistic as possible because the new discoveries, the new ideas all tend to be at the interstices of the, of the traditional disciplines. They're all in the middle there. They're not right in, this, in those traditional disciplines anymore. So the more cross, cross-disciplinary, cross-functional we can be, that's hard. That, that's really hard. The, the culture of the academy is still built around formal academic disciplines and all of the all the things that govern faculty life the the you know tenure system and and teaching and all just all that stuff and what what you own and what you have control over that's all on those formal in those formal silos but they can't be silos and so i i think maybe if there's one thing i would point out is figuring out how human scholarship can be uh, as boundary spanning as possible and I, I think Michigan State is ideally, it has a, a history of doing that, has a bit of a culture of doing that. 
and it's ideally suited to um, to continue on in that direction. But that's that's the kind of change in culture management uh, that we've just been talking about, and it's it's hard, and it takes a lot of people a lot of time. And it's all it's sort of ironic. It's almost like we're evolving into our original identity. And I appreciate that you've uh, mentioned our cross disciplinary work here at Michigan State. That should be the norm from the top to the middle to the bottom levels of the org chart. And I would encourage our listeners who aren't deans, who aren't researchers used to cross disciplinary work. That even if you're in a role like mine, I'm an APA 12 or something like that, I work cross-disciplinarily all the time. And you can really get resources from your colleagues and coworkers, even if they're not in the same college, building, or department as you. So I encourage cross-disciplinary work at every level. That's how you build your networks, like we've been talking about, where you can share resources. And I think that you really, really nailed it down at the end with this concept of evolution and evolving because when we hear the word change, sometimes uh, people get anxious, we're going to change. And you mentioned it during this podcast episode. Uh, change, it needs to be an explanation of why. And you can't immediately implement change by just saying the old way was bad. But if we look at it in terms of a perspective of evolving and improving and this constant ability to just take a step back, as you said, look at it from a different angle bring someone in, listen to their perspective, and you can learn from them. Those are all the things that I think make up the qualities of great leadership. I'll use your word and I'll, <laughs> I'll hold the S word for later um, when we give out our Outstanding Supervisor Awards on October 16th and 17th for our Celebrating Bosses Day. Uh, when, when the next time we all get together as a group and uh, we give the awards to the next to the next folks. So the last thing I'll ask you is, do you remember when you got your award? How was it? And what uh, flavor of cake frosting did you have? <laughs> well, I can't remember the cake frosting. I know there was a, a ginormous cake. Um, it, that was a really special day for me. Um, I, I had had a lot of self-satisfaction from working with, I, I won't say managing, working with successful teams for a long time in a number of different spheres, but to be recognized directly by the people that I was working with in my office. Uh, uh, it was it was a really really special occasion. So um, it's it's a cool uh, recognition, and I think that this follow up that you're doing again in the in the teaching and learning mode, um, getting people to talk about uh, their experiences and what they found to be uh, productive and and not so much is really valuable. And I, I hope that uh, by, by really appreciate being part of it and uh, hope. I wish you all the best in carrying this forward. Very cool. I hope this was an outstanding podcast episode. I want to thank my co-host, Mike Gardner, and uh, my guest today, David Gift, Outstanding Supervisor Award winner. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Work Life Podcast, a product of Michigan State University. <laughs>